just sung about the goodness and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Father in heaven as well. I want to read to you from Psalm 107 this morning. It's a psalm about the goodness and the love of the Lord, particularly displayed in how the Lord delivers those who belong to Him out of distress. Have you ever been in distress before and appreciated the Lord's deliverance? I want you to listen as I read through a portion of Psalm 107 and listen how the Lord delivers His people from distress and particularly listen how the goodness and the love of the Lord is displayed in His discipline which drives us to distress from which he delivers us. Listen to this. Psalm 107, beginning in verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he's good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he's redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Listen, for he satisfies the longing soul. And the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they'd rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. What do you think they did? They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and out of the shadow of death, and he burst their bonds. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. For his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and he cuts in two bars of iron. Some were fools to their sinful ways and because of their iniquities they suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food and they drew near to the gates of death. But then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and he healed them and he delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Would you join me as we pray? Oh, great and mighty God, we, we bow ourselves before you this morning. And we do so having already sung and having read in your holy word of your goodness and of your loving kindness towards us. Lord, to even pause and and meditate on that for a moment is overwhelming. To consider your great goodness toward us. The goodness that, as we sang, you lavish on us in so many different ways. That goodness that you lavish on us as we live our daily lives, and you just care for us in the, in the little day-to-day things that we need. For you provide for us jobs and homes and families and children, food to eat every day, a place to sleep, a loving and gracious church family, a, a place like this where we can gather in a free nation and openly worship you and sing with joy in our hearts. Oh, your goodness and your loving kindness.
is great towards us. And we worship you for that this morning. We thank you for that. And Lord, then there are those moments in our life where, as we read in the psalm, we find ourselves in distress. Sometimes it's just life that brings the distress. Sometimes it's just living in a sinful world and we feel pain and we feel grief and we experience hurt, disappointment. And it's distress and it drives us to cry out to you. And in every case, we find that you deliver us, you heal us, you encourage us, you care for us. You you pour out your love in our lives in ways that are real, in ways that are personal. And sometimes, Lord, that distress that happens in our lives is brought on by our own sinful ways. We rebel and we deal with those consequences. And it's even in, in, in those moments that you don't turn your back on us and you don't forsake us. It's even then that we cry out to you and you still deliver us time and time again. You forgive us. You wipe the slate clean. You give us a fresh start. It's your goodness and your loving kindness. And for that, we worship you this morning. Just as the psalmist said, Lord, you send out your word and you heal us and you deliver us. And no doubt this morning, Lord, as we've gathered in this place, we've come from different homes and different families and different ways of living, different occupations. And all of us have come, Lord, with with life attached to us from this week. Some, no doubt, Lord, in distress. And they need uh, more than anything this morning for your word to go out and to heal them. They need for your word to go out and to deliver them. They need for your word to go out and encourage them. And so, God, we pray that that would be the reality this morning. Uh, That our time together this morning would not be just uh, singing and praying and the things that we do out out of habit. But that our hearts would be set on your word and it would go out and bring healing and deliverance and freedom and encouragement and challenge this morning. We thank you, Lord, for... For our friend John, who's coming to preach, to teach us. We thank you for his life and his ministry, for his family. We pray your, your, your richest blessings on them. And particularly this morning, as he opens up your word to teach, we pray, Lord, your, your holy anointing on him as he teaches. May your word go out this morning and be effective in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Originally, I was supposed to... Uh, to uh, be back from the portion of chaplain school that I'd originally planned to go to this past week and be preaching this week. But uh, plans changed along the way and things shifted and uh, that left uh, a need for this Sunday morning. And so uh, grateful to the Lord that uh, I knew I could pick up my phone and dial a quick number and on the other end would be John Settlemeyer and he would... Uh, I was at least pretty sure, uh, say yes, I would love to preach at Grace on the Ashley this coming Sunday. And uh, so this morning, uh, I want to, to introduce John. Most of you who are part of Grace on the Ashley know him. You've been around he and Janice and their family, faithful members to our church, and uh, you know them and uh, love them as I do. Uh, if you're a guest with us, I just want to briefly mention that uh, the guy that's about to come and open God's word is a, a good friend, uh, a faithful servant of the Lord. He is an active duty chaplain in the United States Navy, serving here in Charleston for the meantime uh, at the Navy Brig. 
uh, where if he's not here on a Sunday morning, he's probably there preaching God's word. Sometimes he preaches God's word there and then comes here. So um, he is a faithful servant of the Lord and a dear friend. And it's a, a privilege to have him come and teach God's word. So you welcome him, John. As you come, you welcome John this morning as he opens up God's word. Good morning. Praise the Lord. We've worshipped this morning and uh, God is speaking and spoken to our hearts already in the the wonderful music that we've heard and and that beautiful prayer and the scripture reading. I encourage you this morning to open your Bibles to the 8th chapter of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. One of the good things about preaching intermittently and being asked to preach when you uh, can come and go is that you can kind of cherry pick the scripture that you want to preach from. Um, I, uh, if somebody were to ask me, what is your favorite passage of scripture in all the Bible? I would probably turn to Romans chapter 8. So this morning I'm going to uh, preach for you from Romans chapter 8 because uh, it is, I think, one of the, the, the key scriptures in all of the Bible that talks about the goodness of God that we were just talking about in the Psalms, the, the resting in God that we just sang about, and the trusting in God that we sang about. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. We're going to look at the first four verses of Romans chapter 8 this morning. So if your Bible's open, I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. I'm reading from the ESV translation. It should be up on the screen. It is. Thank you, brother. Romans chapter 8, beginning of verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Would you please bow with me for a word of prayer? Father, this is your holy word. And this morning, I pray that we would bow before you. I pray that our hearts would be open. I pray that our minds would be ready to hear from you today, Father pray that you'll speak to each and every heart that's here this morning. We need to hear from you, Father. So we pray your will might be done in this place. May all that is said and all that is done give you honor, praise, and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Romans 8 is one of the most beloved passages in all the Bible. Not just for me, but for a lot of people. A lot of people love Romans chapter 8. Now, it doesn't mean it's more inspired than any place else in the Bible, but I would say maybe it is more inspiring than other places in the Bible. It's, it's not more inspired than Leviticus chapter 13, but I don't know how many people who have memorized. How many of y'all have memorized Leviticus 13? Anybody? No? It's the passage of Scripture that talks about the, the law's requirements 
concerning leprosy. So I don't know if it's one of those verses that maybe is a life verse for anybody from Leviticus 13. But many of you, many of you uh, turn to Romans chapter 8 many, many times over the course of your life to draw encouragement and strength from it because it is a great great passage of scripture it is what many have called the greatest chapter in the bible it begins with the verse i read in verse one no condemnation and it ends the end of the chapter with no separation so what a glorious passage of scripture that god has given us through the pen of the apostle paul But it doesn't just show up in our Bibles in a vacuum, does it? It's not just that we have Romans 8 and nothing else. We have to understand the context and uh, where it comes from before we dive into these verses that I just read. So the human author, as most of us know, is the Apostle Paul. And he's writing to a group of believers in the city of Rome. These are Gentile believers. And he wants to teach them and help them understand the message of the gospel. The grace that comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the message of the gospel stood in such strong contrast to the religious uh, uh, mood and what was going on in the world around the people in Rome in that day. And nothing much has changed. Because in this day in which we live, the message of the gospel is in strong contrast to what most of the people who are outside these walls, most of the people who are not in church, most of the people who don't understand the message of the gospel have a completely different understanding, don't they, of what it is and what it means. The people of Rome were very religious. They had a wide variety of gods based upon your own personal preference, based upon your own perverse desires. You could pick and choose whatever God you decided you wanted to follow. Has anything changed in 2,000 years? We still have people who, maybe even in the name of the God of the New Testament, but they worship God in the way that they choose. They worship a God in the way that they see fit, but not according to His holy word. The people of Rome were ignorant of the truths of the Christian life, and nothing much again has changed. But the people of Rome in particular had so many strange and weird ideas about what Christians thought and what they believed. For instance, they believed that all Christians were cannibalistic because we practiced the Lord's Supper, and they understood or had heard somebody talk about how Jesus said, this is my body broken for you, this is my blood which was shed for you. So they believed that when Christians gathered together in homes for worship, that they were actually consuming somebody's body and somebody's blood. They believed Christians were cannibalistic because they didn't understand. They also believed that Christians practiced Uh, incest because we called each other brother and sister in the first century. So they called their spouse, this is brother so-and-so, or this is my sister so-and-so, but when they were actually married. So they had these strange and weird ideas about what Christianity was and and what they believed. Today, in our culture, in our world, people have very strange and different ideas about what we as Christian believers practice and teach and what the Bible says about who Jesus is and what Jesus did and how a person can come to have a right relationship with him. It's radically different from what most people in the world who are outside the Christian church believe. They think that um, 
Christianity is just another religion among a pantheon of religions that teach that you have to pull yourself up, that you have to get better, that you have to work in order to receive the favor of God. And somehow, some way, God is going to let you into heaven. If you were to ask somebody on the street, you know, what is a requirement? What does it take in order for a person to go to heaven? Most people are going to tell you, if my good things that I do outweigh the bad things that I do, then God's going to let me into heaven. And if you talk to 99.9% of the people, they all believe their good deeds outweigh their bad, don't they? All of them. Radically different than the message of the gospel. The gospel is Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The gospel is that Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death on the cross, rose from the dead, and all who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone will have eternal life and will spend eternity in his glorious presence. That's the gospel. And that's what most people don't understand. The people of Rome needed to get that message. So Paul writes the book of Rome, uh, write the book of Romans to those people to show them the truth of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. That's the overarching theme of the book of Romans. Paul is laying out chapter by chapter, verse by verse, a very detailed explanation, explanation of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. The first three chapters of Romans, if you read those, you'll find out that Paul lays out the bad news that we're all sinners. Romans 3.23, as many of you know that scripture, all have sinned and what? Fallen short of the glory of God. Right after that verse, in verse 23 of chapter 3, Paul begins to say, but the good news is this, and he begins to lay out the message of the gospel, the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. See, the gospel is the only remedy for the bad news, isn't it? It's the only way of salvation. It's the only way of redemption for sinful men and women, the gospel. And Paul's discussion of the message of the gospel comes to a culmination here in Romans chapter 8. So as we look at these four verses this morning, I want, you to, I want to show you the argument that Paul's going to take us through, and then we'll talk about each verse as we go. He says, in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation because of what verse 2 says. Verse 2 says, we're free from the bondage of sin through, verse 3, what Christ has done. Are you with me so far? No condemnation, verse 1, because we're free from the bondage of sin, in verse 2, through what Christ has done, in verse 3. And verse 4 says, as a result of that, we can live lives of obedience to Jesus Christ, our Savior. So the first thing I want us to see is in verse 1, and I'm just calling this one a triumphant declaration. A triumphant declaration. Let me read it to you again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I think we can just pray and go home now. Amen? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We live lives of condemnation. 
where we feel like we're condemned. We feel like we're under condemnation all the time. And this verse says there is no condemnation. Zero, zip, zilch, none. Never can be condemnation. Our judgment day is past. It's behind us. It happened 2,000 years ago at Calvary. Our judgment day is past. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. During the days of the Civil War, near the end of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln was asked this question. He, they, somebody said, and one of his aides said, What are you going to do with the South once the war is over? How are you going to treat them once the war is over? And his answer was this, It'll be as if they never left. He wanted the restoration to be such for the United States and for the healing to come back to our nation in such a way that there was never any division. There was never any civil war whatsoever. He wanted the, the reunion to be complete. That's what happened at the cross. Our rebellion, our sinfulness, our hatred for the God of the universe is completely eradicated and wiped away. And now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He treats us as if if we were never his enemies in the first place. This triumphant declaration, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, this grand absolute begins with the words, therefore. There is therefore now no condemnation. And when you see that word, you always want to look back and see exactly what he's referring to. Well, Paul here is referring to a conclusion based on something that he said back in chapter 5. So if you would, turn back a couple of pages to Romans chapter 5. And I want you to see as he continues his, what he said in chapter 5 as he's talking about the gospel and how we have no more condemnation. In chapter 5 and verse 8, he says this, But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, what happened? Christ died for us. Christ died for us. Verse 9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Our salvation that we have is not from the devil. It's not all just from our sin, but we are saved from God's justice, God's wrath that he must pour out on sin. And there's no condemnation for it because of what Christ has done. That's what he's saying in verse 9. Skip down to verse 16. Chapter 5, verse 16. He says, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. He said, the gift that that God has given us is not like what what happened in Adam. For the judgment following one trespass, that is the sin of Adam, brought condemnation. Remember that phrase. Okay? The judgment following the sin of Adam brought condemnation upon the whole human race. That's what Paul is saying. But the free gift following many trespasses, that's your sins and mine, not the one trespass from Adam, but the sins of all of us, many trespasses brought what? Justification. Brought justification. Verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, 
Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So Paul here talking about the righteousness of Christ, the the forgiveness of sin, and then he carries that on back in chapter 8. Verse 8 says, said we are enemies, but Christ died for us. Verse 9 said we're justified by his blood and we're saved from God's wrath. And then verse 16 says we are justified and our condemnation is removed. Then verse 18 said, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men... One act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. There's no condemnation because of the one act of righteousness that Jesus Christ did for us. The basis for Romans 8, verse 1, the message of Romans 8, verse 1, is that outside of Christ... Apart from Him, those who are separated from Jesus, there is nothing but condemnation. In Christ, for those who are believers in Jesus, for those who put their faith and trust in Christ alone for their salvation, there's no condemnation. Before Christ, before I am in Christ, I am condemned. All are condemned. And we all face the judgment of a holy and righteous God. Why? Because we're born in sin. We're born uh, transgressors of God's law. Paul says in another place, in Adam, all die. All of us were put under condemnation through the sin of our father Adam. And not only that, not only were we born this way, but we choose to sin and rebel against him, don't we? We choose to sin. Every single one of our sins, as little as they may seem to me, as little as my sins may seem to me, and as big as yours are, (laughs) just saying. My little sins are an offense to a holy God. My smallest little sin that I don't even notice that I commit on a daily basis our cosmic treason to a holy and righteous God. And without Jesus, I stand completely in condemnation before Him. All of our sins, every single one of them, are ultimately not against one another, not against the government, not against any laws that we have, but ultimately all of our sins are against God, aren't they? Remember David? Lusted after Bathsheba, committed adultery with her, committed murder to cover it up, got away with it for months, thought he was scot-free, thought there was no problem. And then when he was confronted with his sin, remember what he prayed? He said, God, against you and you alone have I sinned. All of our sins are against God. We don't recognize often enough How desperately, how desperately we need that forgiveness and to have that condemnation removed from us. I heard a story about a pastor who was, their church was in the middle of a construction project. 
and the pastor uh, felt a little guilty. He'd been sitting in his office, and the guys were up on the roof working. Felt a little guilty that he hadn't talked to them about Jesus at all. And so he decided, you know what, I'm going to go up there and talk to these guys about Jesus. So he got up, he climbed up on the roof, and there's a guy up there working. And he sat down beside him, and he said, listen, I need to tell you about Jesus. And the guy said, listen, pastor, I don't want to hear about Jesus. Not interested. And the pastor said, well, well, why not? He said, because you don't know me. I am way, way too evil for you to tell me about Jesus, for me to hear about Jesus. I'm way too wicked. I don't, I don't want anything to do with that because he understood he was under condemnation, right? So the pastor thought about it for a minute and a thought came to him and he said, he said, whatever it is that you've done, whatever, wherever you've been, whatever sin you've committed, I am wor- a worse sinner than you are. And the guy laughed at him. What? There's no way. You're a preacher. You know, you can't be a worse sinner than me. He said, well, let me tell you something. He said, in about 10 minutes from now, after I'm done with this conversation with you, I'm going to get off this roof and I'm going to go have lunch. You are going to hell. And he said, you're going to hell. I'm going to lunch. And I'm never going to give you another thought for the rest of my life. He said, now that's pretty bad. And the guy said, you know what? You're right. You are worse than me. That man became a believer in Christ through the message of the gospel. He recognized his own sinfulness. He didn't need somebody to convince him. And when the pastor laid it out for him and helped him understand that all of us stand condemned before a holy God, he got it. And God opened his heart to believe the gospel. John Piper has defined sin in the context of the attributes of God. I think this is pretty good. He says that we sin when God's glory is not honored, God's holiness is not reverenced, God's greatness is not admired, God's power is not praised, God's truth is not sought, God's wisdom is not esteemed, God's beauty is not treasured, God's goodness is not savored, God's faithfulness is not trusted, God's commandments are not obeyed, God's justice is not respected, God's wrath is not feared, God's grace is not cherished, God's presence is not prized, and, last one, God's person is not loved. So how are we doing so far? We're all condemned, aren't we? We're all condemned. The bad news that is implicit here in verse 1 is that outside of Christ, all of us stand guilty and condemned. John Calvin said, as long as we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. It doesn't matter that Jesus died on the cross for sins if you are not a part of those for whom Christ has died. It doesn't matter if Jesus suffered on the cross and rose from the dead for the justification of sinners if you are not willing to bow to His Lordship and commit yourself to Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter to you.
There's no redemption anyplace else. There's nowhere else that anyone can go. There's no good deed that a person can commit. No religious ritual or act of piety that can remove condemnation from us. The only hope for a lost and dying world is found in Christ in verse 1. That's the power of the gospel. That's the message of Romans 8.1. And it is a triumphant declaration. There is therefore now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But then look at verse 2. Not only is that a triumphant declaration, but there's also in verse 2 radical freedom. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The first word there is for. Some translations use the word because. So verse 2 answers the question. Why is there no condemnation for those who are in Christ? Why is it that we can stand before Him with no condemnation whatsoever? Why is that the case? And he says, verse 2, Because the law of the Spirit of life has set you free. In other words, the law of the Spirit, which is the Gospel, the message of the Gospel, has set us free from the rule and the reign of sin and death. Paul here is contrasting the the power of the law versus the power of the Spirit. And he says the law can only produce death. You get that? The law can only produce death. It cannot grant what it demands. The law demands our complete and total surrender and obedience and subservience to it. The law demands that you follow it to the letter. What did Jesus say? If you've broken one law, what? You're guilty of all of them. The law can't even grant what it demands of us. It demands perfection. Complete obedience. I was in a class recently at work where uh, they had a police officer come in to talk about drunk driving and the problems with drunk driving. And, and after she got done b- making this presentation, uh, and it was one of those blood spills on the highway kind of presentations. You've probably seen those or heard of those. Uh, but after she was finished, she offered people the opportunity to ask questions. And, and she said afterwards, she said, I knew this question was going to come up because it comes up every time I speak somewhere. But somebody raised her hand and asked her the question on everybody's mind. How fast... Can I go before I get pulled over? Right? How fast can I be going before I not get, and I not get pulled over? Because, see, it doesn't matter what the speed limit sign says. That 55 is just a suggestion. What really matters is, is how fast you can go before the guy's going to turn on his lights and pull you over. But God's law is not like that. God's law is not like that. The law cannot bring us to a place where we feel good about ourselves. The law cannot bring us to a place where we submit to it completely. It just doesn't do it. It does not and it cannot produce in us righteousness. In fact, that's not the law's job, is it? The law was never designed to show us that we cannot... The law was never designed for us to follow. It was designed and created to demonstrate to us that we cannot obey it. It was a standard by which we always long for but can never get to. 
Turn over in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now skip over to verse 24, same chapter. He says, So then the law was our guardian. Some translations use the word schoolmaster until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Paul is saying there in Galatians, the law was never designed. That was the, not the intention that you obey it. That's what the people of Israel got wrong. They believed that they were given the law, the Ten Commandments and all those laws, and they believed that they could really keep them and they could really follow them and obey them. That was what happened with the man who ran to Jesus and he said, Good sir, what must I do that I have to have eternal life? And he said, Well, you know the commandments. And the guy said, Psh, Piece of cake. All those I've kept from my youth. Had he kept them from his youth? Absolutely not. He missed the whole point. The law was never designed to do that. The law cannot create within us the desire to obey it. Only two things can give you the desire to obey the law. Only two. Fear of judgment. Fear of condemnation. Right? You know that that's true because every time you see a police officer by the side of the road, what does your foot do? Does it come off the accelerator a little bit? Yes, it does. Right? That can get you to obey. Fear of punishment can get you to obey the law. But that's not the way God chooses to work. The only other thing, the only other thing that can get you to obey the law is grace. We're going to see that when we get to verse 4. Go back to Romans Chapter 8 for me. See, the law is a mirror. I can look into a mirror all day long, and it's not going to help me look, get any better looking. I can, look, I can look at myself in the mirror and wish that I was better looking, but it's not going not to change anything. A mirror reveals my flaws and doesn't do anything about them. That's what the law does. The law is not transformational. The law is only revelatory. The law just reveals our sinfulness. It's not that the law is bad. The law is good. It is holy. It reflects the character of God. But it can only produce in us death and not life. What the law produces in us is death. Because... 
as he says in here in verse 2, only because of our sinful flesh. The law produces death in us. A chain is only as strong as what? Its weakest link. The weakest link that connects us to the law is not the law. It's us, isn't it? It's us. And that's why it produces in us death. The law cannot do anything good in us because we're all flawed, weakened vessels. We're, we're sinners, so we're unable to keep the righteous requirements of the law. All that the law does, verse 2, again, is make us want to sin more. It makes us want to sin more. We've been set free from the law. Praise the Lord. We've been set free from the bondage of the law by the Spirit of life, verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Charles Wesley, in his great hymn, And Can It Be That I Should Gain, put it like this. He said, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's light. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's what the gospel does for us. That is radical freedom. So verse 1, a triumphant declaration. Verse 2, radical freedom. Verse 3, in the first part of verse 4, there is supernatural deliverance. Look at verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in the first part of verse 4, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. What the law was incapable of doing that was reconciling us to God, what the law was never designed to do, is what God did. God did all of it. That's why we can take verse 1 seriously. If Romans 8 verse 1 says, There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If any part of that has anything to do with my behavior, then that verse would not be there, would it? Because I would fail. And so would you. If there was any part of my, my salvation, if there was any part of my justification, if there was anything that I could do, then there would be condemnation because I would fail. Every single time. It's all of grace. The only part of your justification, the only part of your salvation that you provide is the sin that you need to be forgiven of. That's it. Nothing else. Here's another great hymn. This is from Augustus Toplady. It's called A Debtor to Mercy Alone. It says this, My name from the palms of his hands eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given. More happy, but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. It's a done deal. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ because of what Jesus has done, not because of anything that I have done, ever could do, or ever will do. 
Back to verse 3. It says, He sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. We know that. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word, what? Became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son condescended to become a man, except for one thing different from you and me. He never sinned. He lived a perfect life of obedience to the law, to the Father. And through His sacrifice, we are justified. He looked like everybody else. There was no halo around His head. He didn't walk around and and glow in the dark as He was walking around at night in Jerusalem. That didn't happen. That's what Paul means when he says He was in the likeness of sinful flesh. And in that likeness, he says, He condemned sin. In the flesh, that is, in his own flesh, Jesus condemned sin when he went to the cross. And then look at that first part there of verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Some people define the idea of justification like this, and they'll say, if you're justified, it means just as if I'd never sinned. Y'all ever heard that one? That is so true. That is absolutely true, but it's not far. It doesn't go far enough. It doesn't quite go far enough. That's half the story of what Jesus has done for us. Because not only has his death taken away our sins, and it's as, as, as if our slate is clean, but also his righteousness, his sinless life is imputed to us. So at the moment of our conversion, we are declared to be as righteous as Jesus was and is. It's imputed to our account. It's not that we are made righteous. It's not that there is some bit of righteousness that is infused into us, as the Catholic Church teaches, but it is imputed, it is credited to us, the righteousness of Christ. And when God looks down from heaven at His children, what He sees when He looks at us is not our sin, not our failures, not the way that we've disappointed Him, but what He sees is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what God sees when He looks down at us. We are, as Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, but he says, we're delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of His beloved Son. It's like being picked up in one of those crane machines that picks you up like one of those in a, in a uh, video arcade and, and carried over here, and then we're placed in the kingdom of righteousness. We were in the darkness... We weren't doing anything. We weren't even trying to find the light. We were in the darkness, and He picks us up, and He carries us over here, and He puts us into the kingdom of light. And we have redemption and forgiveness for our sins. That's what He does. That is a supernatural deliverance. Amen? That's what it is. And all those things lead us to number four. Because of a triumphant declaration, because of the radical freedom and the supernatural deliverance, we now have, fourthly, the power to obey. We have the power to obey. We've already established that the law does not save us. It can't do that. That salvation is apart from the law through the power of the gospel, which is why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But now verse 4 tells us this. Not only is our justification only by God's grace through the gospel, 
But our sanctification, the way that we live our lives as a Christian believer, is also only by God's grace through the gospel. The end of verse 4 says this, Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, some of you may have that particular phrase up in verse 1. Some of your Bibles, you have an NIV or some other translation, has that phrase in verse 1. That's a a transcription error. It belongs in verse 4. It doesn't belong in verse 1. It goes right here, and it fits with the argument. It didn't fit in the argument in verse 1, but it does here in verse 4. The word walk refers to our manner of life, the way that we live, the things that we do, the, the, our way of thinking, our manner of life, the things that make you you is what he means by the word walk there. All, every aspect of your, of your uh, character, your life, your behavior. Paul says that for the believer, those things are done according to the Spirit. According to the Spirit. In fact, he's going to use the better part of, the, of chapter 8 to talk more about the differences between those who walk in the flesh and those who walk in the Spirit. We won't get into that this morning, but I want you to see and understand this morning that as believers, the power that we have to obey God, to do what God calls us to do, to be obedient to what He commands us to do in a very small part uh, because we will never obey completely, right? We've talked about that. But the obedience that we can have, the way that we can live lives of righteousness by doing those things that God commands us to do, the, the, uh, the, the things that we do that, that bring grace into our life by reading our Bible, by praying, by worship, by coming together in, in church this morning, and the things that we do to, to, to build us up, to sanctify us, to make us more like Jesus, the power that we have to obey and to do those things comes from the same power that declares us righteous in verse 1. That's what he's saying in verse 4. We walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, the source of our sanctification is the same place as the source of our justification. Justification and sanctification are both works of the Spirit. See, many of us have been raised in a tradition, or we've, we've thought this, and, and I was raised in this tradition that believed that you are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Yes, that is true, but then you've got to work hard, and you've got to get on that treadmill every day, and you've got to run a race in order to, to keep God from being mad at you for what you've done. You have got to daily spend an hour and a half reading your Bible, and then two hours praying, and then three hours witnessing, and then four hours at church, and then, you know, and, the, and just the treadmill of obedience that we are called, that we're told that we have to do, is just exhausting, and it's impossible. Paul's saying, that's not the case. He's saying we walk according to the Spirit. It's done by Him. If you're a believer in Christ, you will produce spiritual fruit. You will grow. You will mature. You will be sanctified because it's something that the Spirit does. Paul calls it the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians because guess what? Guess where it comes from? It comes from the Spirit. It doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from your behaviors. 
If you're a believer in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, you will produce spiritual fruit. That's what Paul is saying in verse 4. It's a part of being a Christian. It's a part of having the Holy Spirit within us. One of the marks of spiritual fruit in our life, one of the evidences that we walk in the Spirit is the recognition of the depths of our own sin. Right? It is. The longer you're a Christian, the more you recognize that you're not there and you're not going to get there on your own. I remember when I was a college student, I remember distinctly having this thought once. I'm about as good a Christian as, as, uh, as there can be. I think I know pretty much all there is to know about the Christian life. When I was a college student, I had that thought one time. Wow. All that shows, all that shows is the depth of my own sin. I want to read for you. This is a a little bit long quotation, but it's so good. This is from John Newton. After 30 years of being a believer, after the life that John Newton had uh, as a slave trader, you know, the writer of Amazing Grace, this is what something that he said. And my first setting out as a Christian, indeed, I thought to be better (laughs) and to feel myself better from year to year. I expected by degrees to attain everything which I then comprised in my idea of a godly Christian. I thought my, my grain of grace, by much diligence and careful improvement, would in time amount to a pound, and that pound in a farther space of time to a talent, and to a talent then I hope to increase from one talent to many, so that supposing the Lord should spare me a number of years, I pleased myself with the thought of dying rich in grace. Did you get that? He said, I thought that a little at a time, a little by little, I would just grow and mature and get better and better and better. And then he said, but alas, these, my golden expectations, have been like South Sea dreams. I have lived hitherto a poor sinner, and I believe I shall die one. Have I then gained nothing by waiting upon the Lord? Yes, I have gained that which I once would rather have been without, such accumulated proofs of the deceitfulness and desperate wickedness of my heart. As I hope by the Lord's blessing has in some measure taught me to know what I mean when I say, Behold, I am vile. And then he said this, And in connection with this, I have gained such experience of the wisdom, power, and compassion of my Redeemer, the need, the worth of His blood, His righteousness, His attention and intercession, the glory that He displays in pardoning iniquity and sin, and passing by the transgression of the remnant of His heritage, that my soul cannot but cry out, Who is a God like unto you? After years of living a Christian life with the expectation that he would get better and better and better, he recognized that it wasn't anything, it was not anything about getting better. It wasn't about growing stronger and having more righteousness. It was about recognizing the depths of his own depravity and sinfulness from which Christ had redeemed him. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in 
Christ Jesus. A glorious truth with amazing implications for us. Radical freedom, deliverance, power to do what Christ commands me to do. John Bunyan wrote this in a sermon called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. He said, One day, as I was passing into a field, this sentence fell upon me. Thy righteousness in heaven. And with the eyes of my soul, I saw Jesus as, at God's right hand. And I thought, there, in Christ Jesus, is my righteousness. So wherever I was, whatever I was doing, God could never say to me, He lacks righteousness. He said, I saw also that it was not my good frame that made me righteous before, nor was it my bad frame that made me, my righteousness worse, for my righteousness was Jesus Christ Himself. He's saying that there is nothing that you can do currently to make God more pleased with you or more angry with you. If you're a believer in Jesus... You have the righteousness of Christ. There's no condemnation. There's no treadmill. You can get off the stairway to heaven to try to get better and better and be more like Him. You can get off that because it's all been done by Jesus. And what He wants from you is not your hard work. He doesn't want your good deeds. He wants your neighbor to have your good deeds. He wants you to submit to His Lordship, to recognize His greatness and your sinfulness. And if you've never trusted in Christ, if you do not know Him, if you've never called upon Him in faith to believe in Him and trust in Him for the message of the Gospel, then there's nothing whatsoever that you can ever do to earn that favor with God. You're as, as condemned as the believers are uncondemned, not condemned. The only difference, the only difference is the power of the Gospel through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, this morning we have been amazed by your grace because we recognize today through your word that there's nothing we can do, that there's no righteousness in us, and that we come before you with nothing in our hands. All we can do is thank you, praise you, and worship you for what you have done through Christ, of bearing our sin on the cross, that we might know you, that we might come this morning into your presence. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this time together in your word. pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. I want to invite you, if you would, to stand. We're going to sing together one more song of worship. Uh, John is going to, uh, if he hasn't already, head to the back of the, uh, the sanctuary this morning. And um, if you have any questions about what you've heard this morning, if you want to know what it means to know, you can go ahead and stand. Yeah, you don't have to wander, look around. If you want to know what it means to know Jesus Christ and to, to experientially understand what it means to not be under the condemnation of God, to be freed from your sin, 
please just slip out and go speak to John. He'd be happy. There are other folks back there that would be happy to talk with you about that, to pray with you, to answer any questions you might have this morning. Uh, But let's sing together, and you consider how God might want you to respond in your own heart to what you've heard this morning. Let's sing. like a river attendeth my way when sorrows like sea billows roll
Thank you so much for your heartfelt worship and your presence this morning. Uh, before we dismiss, I want to. I want to redismiss. 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 I want to. I want to.